0: And thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the
2: Commonwealth Club. I'm Steve Klein, Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer at PG&E. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and environment that advances the transition to a prosperous and clean energy future. Our guest today is Lisa Jackson, Administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Just four months after taking the helm at EPA, Administrator Jackson stood in the White House Rose Garden last May alongside CEOs of the world's largest automakers. The industry CEOs and top federal regulators all listened shoulder to shoulder as President Obama announced a deal to increase auto efficiency standards and reduce greenhouse gases. It was a historic gathering of former foes that would have been unthinkable just a few months earlier. Before President Obama picked her as the first African-American to run the EPA, Administrator Jackson served as the Chief of Staff for New York Governor, sorry, New Jersey Governor John Corzine, and Commissioner of the State's Department of Environmental Protection. In that position, she worked to ensure underserved communities receive fair environmental protection under the law. Previously, Ms. Jackson worked for 16 years at EPA in Washington, D.C. and New York, focusing on hazardous waste and enforcement of environmental regulations. Please join me in welcoming Lisa Jackson.
0: Well, thank you all very much, and I'm not even going to start acknowledging all the wonderful people out here except for two. First, for that lovely introduction, thanks, Steve, and thanks for all your work at PG&E and for being one of our business leaders. And, of course, from California, what a surprise. And, of course, thanks to Greg for having me here today. Now, I'm so glad to be with you in California This has been uh, quite a whirlwind trip. It's only two days so far, and we're showing no signs of slowing down. Tomorrow I'll be in Los Angeles with Governor Schwarzenegger at his climate summit, where apparently I'm going to be introduced by Harrison Ford. (laughs) Yes, as a government bureaucrat, I'm quite excited about that. Listen, if you told me when I started at EPA, which was way back in 1987, that this was where I was going to end up, I'm not sure what would have surprised me more, whether I would one day be administrator of the US Environmental Protection Agency or whether I would be sharing a stage with Han Solo and the Terminator. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna be the only one on stage without my own action figure. It's a real privilege to speak at the Commonwealth Club. This venue has hosted its share of notable moments, and I remember, well, a few years ago a conversation hosted here about the so-called death of environmentalism. Well, I'm happy to report tonight that environmentalism is not, in fact, dead. It has been sick at the federal level. But thanks to President Obama, we're going to get it care, and that's a good thing, too. Right now, our planet is facing a deteriorating atmosphere and a rapidly changing climate. Our country is entering a global race for clean energy with fierce environmental and economic urgency, and our communities are awakening, having weathered years of federal inaction on air, on water, and on land. At the same time, our awareness of environmental issues is broader than ever. Environmental issues are written up in the business pages now. Al Gore won a Nobel Peace Prize for work on climate change, not to mention an all-important Academy Award. And states from California to Texas to North Dakota to Indiana lead the ubiquitous quest in the race for green jobs. It's a long way from a debate about spotted owls. In response to the most significant economic downturn in generations, President Obama has made clear that the choice between our economy and our environment is a false choice. Through the Recovery Act, EPA is investing more than $7 billion in the creation of green jobs across the country. And those investments aren't just about creating jobs in the near term. By refurbishing water infrastructure or cleaning up a brownfields development site, We're making communities better places for businesses to invest and bring more jobs and rebuilding the foundation for prosperity that made us a global economic leader for generations past. To make sure we are a global economic leader in the future, the Recovery Act makes a strong down payment on energy efficiency and clean energy. One newspaper wrote that standing alone, those investments represented the biggest energy bill in history. As I said, that's just a down payment. Getting America running on clean energy will create millions of jobs that can't be shipped overseas. It'll cut carbon emissions and keep billions of dollars here at home by reducing our dependence on foreign oil. In many ways, the country has caught up with California. Two weeks ago, we announced a clean car program that will keep more than 950 million tons of CO2 from the skies. That represents the first-ever National Greenhouse Gas Emission Standards for Vehicles. And that program had its origins here in California. I remember signing on to the state's lawsuit as commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection back in 2007. And then two years later, being EPA Administrator, I was proud to be able to bring the California waiver back from the dead. That's more Obama environmental health care. Our challenge at EPA is to rise to this moment. We've hit the ground running on priority issues. First ever national initiatives to confront climate change. Restoring the rightful place of science as our cornerstone and rebuilding public trust in our work. Revitalizing protections from toxic chemicals, smog, water and pollution and expanding the conversation on all of these issues so that communities most affected by environmental degradation have a voice. If you wonder whether elections really matter, matter, look no further than this agency. I believe we've done more in the last eight months than was done in the last eight years. Now, there's plenty more to come, which is part of what I want to talk about today. In my tenure as head of the EPA, I intend to focus on four key areas of special need, confronting climate change and getting America running on clean energy, protecting and cleaning up our air and water, upgrading our country's regulations and laws on chemicals and toxics, and expanding the conversation on environmentalism. I want to talk about all of these things today, and I want to make some news about one of them, which I'll get to in a moment. But I want to do all of that by starting by introducing myself. Now, my staff will tell you this is the part of the speech I am most uncomfortable about. I don't like talking about me, but I ask for your patience here tonight. I need you to know who I am, not because it's about me, but because I represent environmentalists, environmentalists who I assure you are out there, and there are millions of environmentalists like me out there. I grew up in the ninth ward of New Orleans, Louisiana. I started elementary school shortly after segregation ended. I attended Tulane University, I majored in chemical engineering, and I intended to work for the oil companies. In New Orleans, that is a very good job. I also found, as I got older, that I felt pulled to public service. I believe now, looking back, that that came from my father. He was an employee of the U.S. Postal Service. He was, like me, a government employee, He was, like me, someone working hard, along with his spouse, to support his family. But he was also, like I strive to be, a person on the front line of serving his community. My father knew the people on his mail route. He used to ring the bell when your social security check came in just to make sure you got it in your hands. He took the Postal Service's rain, snow, not much snow in New Orleans, (laughs) dark of night, idea seriously. And I can remember as a little girl watching him leave the house in some of the most horrible weather. He was a trusted part of his community, and I've often thought about him as we've worked to rebuild confidence in public service at EPA. I used to tell my father that I wanted to work at the post office, and as you can see, I didn't go that route. However, when my dad worked for the post office, his boss's 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 boss was the postmaster general. And today, EPA's headquarters in Washington are located in the building that was once the offices of the postmaster general of the United States. So every day, I come in and I sit down at my my desk at that same office where the postmaster general used to sit. And every day, it reminds me of my father. And every day, it reminds me that like him, I serve a community and I play a role in people's lives. In recent years, many Americans have had cause to wonder whether decisions made at EPA were guided by science and by the law, and whether or not those decisions were trumped by politics. We've had to respond to that skepticism. We must respond to it, and we've done it in these first months. On my first day, I sent a memo to every EPA employee stating that our path would be guided by the best science and by the rule of law, and that every action we took would be subject to unparalleled transparency. In the course of getting EPA back on the job, we've reviewed decisions, like the California waiver refusal and the endangerment finding. The endangerment finding was prompted by a Supreme Court ruling back in 2007. That decision, perhaps the most important decision ever handed down in environmental law, prompted EPA to determine if greenhouse gases pose a threat to the health of Americans, and if so, it obligated EPA to act to regulate them under the Clean Air Act. The court's verdict sent a clear message that day in 2007. There are no more excuses for delay. But in an example that I believe may go down in history as one of the great black eyes of environmental movements, When the first endangerment finding was sent to the Bush White House two years ago, they simply refused to open the email. Regrettably, nothing much changed until we got into the building. We quickly set to work on the Bush error document. We submitted it as directed by the court. We have received to date almost 400,000 responses in a 60-day public comment, and I can assure you that we have opened each and every one of those emails. After I left Tulane, I got my master's in chemical engineering from Princeton, and I wrote my thesis on wastewater. That was right around the time when Love Canal, the neighborhood in New York where they found 20,000 tons of toxic waste illegally buried beneath people's homes, was making big news. I saw about communities suffering from environmental challenges, and stepping in to help those communities was the EPA. It's no accident that my first job at EPA was in the Superfund Hazardous Waste Cleanup Program. For the next 15 years, I worked with EPA, on the ground with those communities and with the people in them. I still keep in my top right desk drawer a letter from a Native American woman whose community was on top of a former Superfund site. She began to advocate for better cleanup for her community. She advocated and was successful in putting her community back on the Superfund list after it was taken off because Ford Motor Company said the site was clean, and the government did too. Today, I keep her letter as a reminder of what we can accomplish at EPA when we do our jobs, but more importantly, what the consequences are when we don't. In those years at EPA, I saw how federal action took shape under three presidents and six administrators, and I watched as the issues evolved. In 2002, I joined the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, and in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. My mother was still living in the Ninth Ward when the storm came. I happened to be visiting her for her birthday, and so I drove her out. I drove her to safety, but like so many others, my mother lost everything she had. In the face of that tragedy, I almost left public service. I was disheartened by the lack of preparation, by the lack of protection, and by a delayed response that cost people their lives. There was something that drew me back. After Katrina, we learned that the devastation and flooding were bad, but they were worse because the marshes and wetlands, the area's natural defenses had been destabilized and cut away for oil and gas lines. By the way, that hurricane changed my mother, too. She can now make as compelling an argument as any wetlands expert about the need to protect and preserve wetlands. <laughs> and why... Wa- yeah, she's pretty cool. But watching her transformation has been a real awakening for me. You see, I'm a professional, and I know about the environment. But watching her become an environmentalist has really astounded me and touched in me the need to make sure we broaden our conversation. I see how urgent it is for us to broaden that conversation. It was focused for me when I took the job at DEP in New Jersey, and it was an issue I raised with President-elect Obama when he appointed me to his transition team last year, and it's a priority now. As the first African-American to lead the EPA, under the first African-American president, I feel a special obligation to change the face of environmentalism. African Americans die from asthma twice as often as whites and have higher cancer mortality rates than any other group. Nearly 30 million Latinos, 72% of the U.S. Latino population, live in places that don't meet U.S. air pollution standards. Native American homes lack clean water at almost 10 times the national rate. Yet these are not the voices driving the environmental debate in our country. We have begun the process of changing the face of environmentalism, but we have to continue to make room for new and different kinds of voices. That also includes rising above partisanship. If we're slipping in the polls, we can't ask climate change to wait. We can't say that human health is next year's issue. Historically, environmentalism has been a bipartisan issue. The National Environmental Protection Act and the EPA all came about under President Nixon. I started at the EPA under President Reagan. Today, I get as many letters and requests for urgent action from red states as I do from blue states. Just last week, the issue was people in a mining town in Treese, Kansas. Before that, water quality and mountaintop mining. Before that, dairy farms in Wisconsin. I meet and collaborate with all kinds of people all over the country and from the full spectrum of political perspectives. They don't all align the same way on every issue, and they don't all take cues from their party when it comes to important environmental issues. Calling yourself an environmentalist, you see, is not a requirement for caring about your environment and the world around you. My perspective is also shaped by being the mother of two teenage sons. I know how environmental problems can affect a child and a family. My 12-year-old son, Brian, has fought with asthma his entire life. He spent his first Christmas in the hospital unable to breathe. All his life, we've had to be careful when it gets too hot outside, when we go on vacation, when the ozone levels rise, or when other environmental triggers are present. My family can't and won't take for granted that Brian's going to be able to breathe easy, and I still occasionally pop up at night when I hear him cough because i remember that croupy sound that was the beginning of an asthma attack when he was a little boy you see a parent of a child with asthma or leukemia must care about the environment around them it's not a choice to be made in every action i take i'm not acting just as epa administrator but also as a mother i never lose sight of the fact that protecting children's health is epa's top priority that means we take aggressive steps when we see areas where our kids are especially vulnerable It also means we don't leave long-term challenges like climate change for the next generation to solve for us. My experience as a parent affords me another important perspective as well, that of the active American consumer. Parents here will understand that the last thing I want to do is drive up the cost of products that I have to now buy for these kids or position the EPA or the debate on climate change as an obstacle to the prosperity which is their future. But right now, I want to talk about another issue that is central to everything from restoring public trust to, res- to protecting our children to growing our economy, understanding the risk posed by chemicals, and doing our utmost to make sure they are safe. After World War II, the chemical industry in this country grew by leaps and bounds, earning the U.S. an enviable reputation for innovation but also making chemicals pervasive in our lives. Everything from our cars to the cell phones we all have in our pockets are constructed with plastics and chemical additives. The technological revolution that my two, tons, my two sons take for granted has done more than changed the way we interact with each other. It's made chemicals ubiquitous in our economy and in our products, as well as in our environment and in our bodies. A child born in America today will grow up exposed to more chemicals than a child from any other generation in our history. A 2005 study found 287 different chemicals in the cord blood of 10 newborn babies. Chemicals from pesticides, fast food packaging, coal and gasoline emissions, and trash incineration. They were found in children in their most vulnerable stage. Our kids are getting steady infusions of industrial chemicals before we even give them solid food. Now, some chemicals may be risk-free at the levels we are seeing. I'm going to repeat that. Some chemicals may be risk-free at the very low levels at which we detect them. But as more and more chemicals are found in our bodies and the environment, the public is understandably anxious and confused. Many are turning to government for assurance that chemicals have been assessed using the best available science and that unacceptable risks haven't been ignored. Right now, we're failing to get this basic job done. Our oversight of the 21st century chemical industry is based on the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act. It was an important step forward at the time, and I thank those of you who advocated for it. It was part of a number of big environmental wins from the 1970s, like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, not to mention the formation of the EPA. But over the years, not only has TSCA fallen behind the industry it's supposed to regulate, it's been proven an inadequate tool for providing the protection against chemical risks that the public rightfully expects – Manufacturers of existing chemicals aren't required to develop the data on toxicity and exposure needed to assess potential risks and demonstrate to EPA that chemicals meet risk-based safety standards. EPA has tools to require the industry to conduct testing, but those tools are cumbersome and time-consuming, and as a result of that, there are troubling gaps in the available data on many widely used chemicals in commerce now. On new chemicals, companies have no legal obligation to develop new information, only to supply data that may already exist. As with existing chemicals, the burden of proof falls on EPA. Manufacturers aren't required to show that sufficient data exists to fully assess a chemical's risk. If EPA has adequate data and wants to protect the public against known risk, the law creates obstacles to quick and effective action. Since 1976, EPA has issued regulations to control only five existing chemicals determined to present an unreasonable risk. That is five out of almost 80,000 existing chemicals. In 1989, after years and years of study, EPA issued rules phasing out most uses of asbestos, an exhaustively studied substance that has taken an enormous toll on the health of Americans. Yet a court overturned EPA's rules because it had failed to clear the many hurdles for action that TOSCA presents. Today, advances in toxicology and analytical chemistry are revealing new pathways of exposure. There are subtle and troubling effects of chemicals on hormone systems, human reproduction, intellectual development, and cognition. Every few weeks, we read about new potential threats. This phenol A, or BPA, a chemical that can affect brain development and has been linked to obesity and cancer, is in baby bottles. Phthalate esters, which have been said to affect reproductive development, are in our medical devices. We see lead in toys, dioxins in fish, and the list goes on. Many states, including California, have stepped in to address those threats because they see inaction at the national level. Senator Lautenberg, Chairman Waxman, Senator Boxer, Congressman Rush, and others in Congress have already recognized that TSCA must be updated and strengthened. EPA needs the tools to do the job the public expects, and we are working together with President Obama on this issue. Today I'm announcing clear administration principles to guide Congress in writing a new chemical risk management law that will fix the weaknesses in TSCA. Let me highlight some principles that are of overriding importance. First, we need to review all chemicals against safety standards that are based solely on considerations of risk, not economics or other factors, and we must set these standards at levels that are protective of human health and the environment. Second, Safety standards cannot be applied without adequate information, and responsibility for providing that information should rest on industry. Manufacturers must develop and submit the hazard use and exposure data demonstrating that new and existing chemicals are safe. If industry doesn't provide the information, EPA should have the tools to quickly and efficiently require testing without the delays and procedural obstacles currently in place. Third, Both EPA and industry must include special consideration for exposures and effects on groups with higher vulnerabilities, particularly children. Children ingest chemicals at a higher ratio to their body weight than adults and are more susceptible to long-term damage and developmental problems. Our new principles offer them much stronger protections. Fourth. When chemicals fall short of the safety standard, EPA must have clear authority to take action. We do need flexibility to consider a range of factors, but we must also have the ability to move quickly. In all cases, EPA and chemical producers must act on priority chemicals in a timely manner with firm deadlines to maintain accountability. This will not only assure prompt protection of health and the environment, but provide business with the certainty that it needs for planning and investment. Fifth, We must encourage innovation in green chemistry and support research, education, recognition and other strategies that will lead us down the road to safer and more sustainable chemicals and processes. All of this must happen with the utmost transparency and concern for the public's right to know. And finally, we need to make sure that EPA's safety assessments are properly resourced with industry contributing its fair share to the cost of implementing all of these new requirements. I take great comfort that the call for change in our chemical management laws is rising from all quarters. A broad coalition of environmental advocates and unions, medical professionals, and public health groups, including grassroots organizations from across the country, have come together to make the case for stronger chemicals regulation. Industry, too, has called for action. Chemical producers are worried not only about an inconsistent patchwork of state laws, but believe that their industry can thrive only if the public is confident that their standards meet rigorous safety, that their products meet rigorous safety standards. And they want the U.S. to lead the world in chemical risk management, not fall further behind in that subject. Many states who have been on the leading edge of addressing chemical risks have also echoed the call for reform. It's not often that chemical industry, the states, the environmental community agree that the current system is not workable and have similar visions of how the new system should be shaped. There are certainly differences of opinion and important details to be worked out, but the common ground that exists now makes me optimistic that Congress can and will put in place a new law that has broad support from stakeholders. That that will be a major piece of environmental legislation. EPA will do its part to make new law a reality. Assuring chemical safety in a rapidly changing world and restoring public confidence that EPA is protecting the American people is a top priority for me, for my leadership team, and for this administration. This is one of several priority issues, all of which we'll be tackling in the days ahead, so I urge you to stay tuned for more. This is a transformative moment for our country. We're likely to look back and see far-reaching changes on multiple fronts, from our financial system to health care to our role as a world leader. For envi- our environment, this is a time unlike any I have seen in two decades of work on these issues. We have an emerging global challenge. Difficult but pressing issues at home. An energized president. The proficiency to tackle almost anything that comes our way. And a population that is tired of waiting for action. We have environmentalists. Stop looking for the crunchy kind. Environmentalists like me. My mom. My stepfather. My son's asthma doctor. My son's asthma nurses. Citizens from all walks of life who want clean air who want clean land, who want clean water. Our towering challenges are dwarfed by some of the greatest opportunities we have ever seen to protect our health and our environment. I hope it's clear to you that I and all of my colleagues at EPA fully intend to seize these opportunities, and I hope you will join us in that work. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here.
1: Our thanks to Lisa Jackson, Administrator of the U.S. EPA, for her very insightful and personal comments today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and I have an avalanche of questions for you. Um, Some are very clearly from people who work for you. Some are from people who want to work for you. Uh, So I'll try to go through these in, in, uh, in due order. Um, just w- first on the news tonight about the uh, TSCA, the Toxic Substance Control Act, uh, one question asks uh, states that the, one of the shortcomings is the requirement to use cost benefit analysis, mandating the least costly option for industry, um, and whether you're uh, new approach will go in that same direction. And also I think whether – you mentioned that business is on board, but what specific organizations or industries are, are, are did you consult in, in getting them on board before you, you took this action?
0: Sure. Cost-benefit has been uh, sort of a, a bugaboo for tox, TOSCA and toxic sum, substances management uh, at EPA for quite some time. And I, I don't think that anyone here – not anyone that I've talked to has ever said, well, this should be absolutely without regard for cost – what they've said is that the first thing the American people should know and believe is that chemicals are assessed for risk, and they're assessed against a standard that's about public health and uh, a clean and safe environment. And that comes before considerations of risk management. So in in the world of uh, public policy, it means that health considerations come first quite often those are not black and white decisions. You ban a chemical or you don't. It's about understanding where a chemical might pose a risk to human health or to the environment somewhere along the chain of its manufacturer use or disposal and then making sure that that risk is mitigated. Uh, and so I think that this is not a cost-benefit analysis per se, although I don't want people to walk away and think that understanding whether or not A particular material has some benefit to offer to society, and whether or not that can be mitigated by various flexibilities won't be part of the decision making. Uh, But cost benefit per se is not in the principles. And the second part was business
1: groups. How how did you bring the American
0: Chemistry Council has probably weeks ago, maybe a month ago, put out their own set of principles. I uh, I advise you to consult them, and many groups have put out their own as well. I think the American Chemistry Council was in actually just uh, this week in my office, and uh, what was absolutely striking to me was how much they've come to the realization that they don't want to fight, they want to switch. And uh, that's an extraordinary moment of opportunity that I wish we saw more of on a lot of other issues in our movement Uh, And I think it represents for us an an extraordinary opportunity.
1: We have a large number of questions about coal and mountaintop removal, and I'd like to just read some of them and and bundle them for you to respond. Uh, In Washington, D.C., the most powerful decision-makers, including the White House and EPA, have their electricity powered by mountaintop-removed coal. When will D.C. stop contributing to the destruction of of Appalachia? Uh, 500 mountains in Appalachia have been destroyed by mountaintop removal. Will you go to Appalachia to see the destruction uh, for yourself?
0: Sure. Uh, On the issue of the Capitol Hill plant, I believe Congress this year decided that they would move towards natural gas for powering that plant. Certainly in the service area that I live in, Uh, in the Washington metropolitan area as well as uh, the service area for many of the buildings, uh, coal is still a major component of uh, the generation mix. I believe the EPA headquarters itself actually uh, pays for wind power generation. It pays that extra bump up that many of us have the option to do. Uh, We'll we'll certainly uh, uh, take credit for that, but obviously that is a a short-term and interim uh, step as well. You know coal generation in many states is over ninety percent of their generation mix. I come from uh, New Jersey most recently, and that 's not the case there and So any recognition of the need to move to a clean energy technology needs to understand needs to also recognize that that transition will be timely time consuming and quite expensive for states that don 't find themselves uh, uh, on, on the New Jersey end of the spectrum when it, it comes to Uh, coal-fired power, and I should mention that New Jersey has a fairly large part of its portfolio that's nuclear, so uh, these are difficult issues but ones we should deal with. With respect to mountaintop uh, coal mining, it's an issue that EPA has been front and center on from the Clean Water Act perspective, and when I talk about the science or when I talk about the law, giving a pass to a permit by just not looking at it is not following the law. It's, 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 you know, environmental approval by neglecting duty. And so all we've said is that we will do our job at EPA. We will review these permits as they come to us for compliance with the Clean Water Act. And we'll review it based on the science that we have, which is evolving and which is based on uh, water quality testing from existing mountaintop removal operations that are going on right now. And we will continue to do that. About two weeks ago, we put out a list of 79 permits that we uh, are concerned about. Those 79 permits were essentially the entire universe of mountaintop mines that were before us. And I believe tomorrow or the next day we'll finalize a list of permits that remain before us. We'll continue to do that work. And yes, I do believe that it's important for me to visit Appalachia and see the operations there. But I don't think... It's more important than the fact that my staff who make these decisions, who do the science, who are responsible for it, have been there many, 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 many times.
1: What are you doing to regulate coal ash after the disastrous release of that toxic substance last year at the Tennessee Valley Authority?
0: In my uh, confirmation hearings back in January, I committed to reviewing uh, coal ash regulation in this country. Essentially, coal ash has been uh, subject to something called the Bevel Amendment and found to be not needed for regulation uh, other than as a solid waste. Uh, Not much different from uh, household garbage. Now, household garbage is actually a fairly regulated material. People think you just throw it away. You don't. There are no open dumps in America. They're lined. There's groundwater monitoring because we know that The rubbish we throw out contains its share of materials which can impact groundwater or human health. Uh, So it's not a lack of control. What has been missing is a federal presence in that control. Garbage regulation is primarily a state-level issue. And so the, the policy question has been what is the proper role of the federal government on a material like coal ash? And we have committed... And uh, I remain committed to issuing a proposed rulemaking with respect to coal ash by the end of this calendar year. And I don't have anything to announce tonight, but the end of this calendar year is coming sooner (laughs) than I might uh, even hope. We're doing so much, but that is certainly something we remain committed to.
1: How does the EPA maintain its stance on clean air and water while President Obama proposes clean coal? Is there any contradiction?
0: No, of course not. I I work for, (laughs) you know, over and over again I remind people that I work for President Obama, that I work very closely uh, with him and certainly his staff in the White House, that I believe he has made uh, prudent decisions and has an all-star cast of people uh, in the Cabinet and in the White House uh, uh, who are all committed to this clean energy transformation. Uh, And I think the President has said throughout the campaign that uh, the key here uh, is moving us to a cleaner coal future, to a future that understands that coal is baseload power for many areas of this country and that it's inexpensive baseload power. Certainly it is tied to jobs. That means we have to transition to a cleaner profile. And I also, as a scientist, do believe that Uh, There are necessary and needed public investments in technology and in potential advances that can help us get to the next generation of generation, if you will. Um, And I don't believe that we need to take an all-or-nothing proposition with respect to coal in the short term. Certainly natural gas is an important fuel Certainly, there's lots of discussion going on around nuclear, in addition to the extraordinary amount of investment in the Recovery Act and renewable energy, uh, which is something that environmentalists like me have been hoping for for such a long time.
1: Lisa Jackson is administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and is our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. The EPA recently announced mandatory reporting site-specific data from large emitters, power plants, et cetera. What impact will this have on the economy? Will small businesses be affected? And can you speak to uh, what level of mercury you think that large emitters ought to be allowed to put into the air?
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, someone here works for me. Okay. (laughs) A lot of people here work for me or work for uh, extraordinarily uh, sophisticated groups and, um, that's a good thing. Listen, uh, the mandatory reporting rule, MRR, is, uh, was quite an achievement. You know, sometimes it's the little things. If you can't count it, how in the world can you start to regulate it? And so this country, despite uh, Congress's requiring EPA in its appropriations language, but despite Senator Feinstein's adamant insistence that we do so, EPA had not put forth a rule on how companies, major emitters, were to report, record, monitor their greenhouse gas emissions. The rule that EPA proposed and just recently finalized, there was some difference, I should say, between the final rule and the proposed rule, but the rule that we adopted requires only those facilities that emit more than 25,000 tons per year to report. That's 131 uh, t- uh, t- uh, Uh, cars of uh, rail cars of coal okay so if you burn 131 rail cars of coal you have to report that kind of level means that we are getting about 80 percent of the emissions in this country captured but we're not touching small businesses most smaller businesses unless we're talking about a really large university campus or something uh, on that order, are not going to be required to report. Are we losing something? Yeah, we're losing about 20 percent of the inventory. But what are we gaining? We're gaining 80 percent. We're gaining knowledge and the ability to make smart policy decisions. About 80 percent of the of the inventory, and we thought that was a wise trade off, especially as we move into this area.
1: You mentioned environmental justice in your opening remarks, and you have a background in, in Superfund sites, and we have a number of questions here about a Superfund site here in San Francisco, the former Hunter's Point shipyard. Uh, and this question says that developers now want to cap rather than, than clean the shipyard for housing development. You know, can, you, can you help us? Uh, people are sick. And perhaps you could res- respond broadly to Superfund sites in general and how that fund is being funded these days.
0: Sure. Uh, I'll start with Superfund in general, but I do want to talk about the, the Shipyard Hunters Point site. Superfund in general, President Obama proposed in his FYO-10 budget to reinstate the Superfund tax. It's really a, a, a going back to the polluter pays principle. Superfund was founded on the idea that polluters should pay for uh, uh, the mess made, even though there was a general acknowledgment that at the time the mess was made, it wasn't against the law to do it. The idea was that that action in and of itself would, would also into the future, uh, force pollution prevention, and I think that is still sound and smart public policy. Um, The reinstatement of the tax was scheduled to begin in 2012, with the idea being that yeah, a new tax on industry, not not necessarily uh, this year, not necessarily next year or the year after, but. In 2012, as the economy has most certainly recovered. And that money, that certainty of funding, has proven to be incredibly important to the vibrancy of brownfields and uh, Superfund cleanups. The knowledge uh, that you have full funding and then can make decisions about the quickest and most ex- uh, efficient way to clean up a site is very important. It affects contracting decisions. It affects cleanup strategy. It affects community expectations. I think it affects public trust. With respect to the site, uh, the, the Hunter's Point uh, site, uh, for those in the audience who may be from that community, I think community health and safety is the utmost uh, of the utmost concern. And... And I met with activists yesterday. I believe uh, the regional office here in San Francisco has been working very closely with communities there to try to give them a voice, to try to bring to the table all the voices that are, ne- are going to need to be heard in order to move from a contentious issue to uh, a Superfund success story. We have lots of them. And my belief is that there- this can be one of them. We're not there today. Uh, and I believe the difference between where we are and that kind of future is communication and a seat at the table and a voice that goes along with that seat.
1: number of questions uh, about climate change and the Waxman-Markey bill. This question from the audience reads, given the fact that the climate bill is unlikely to pass Copen- Congress before Copenhagen, what can EPA do to help get an international agreement passed?
0: Come on it's all now. on your shoulders. Senator Boxers and Kerry are going to introduce their bill tomorrow. And the one thing I've not—I've learned not to do—is try to handicap anything that has to do with uh, Capitol Hill and the, and the workings of Congress. They are, you know, by virtue of the brilliance of the constitutional authors, their own branch of government with their own mind. Um, what EPA can and must do is follow the law. That's all I've ever said. This isn't about trying to make Congress. Uh, Act—that's not our job. It's, it's actually quite backwards. It's about a Supreme Court ruling uh, in April of 2007 that was an extraordinary victory, really a David versus, you know, Goliath story of uh, uh, that only the environmental movement can can uh, can can conjure and and dream up and actually see to reality. And, and the obligation of EPA now as the executive branch of government to simply follow the law as laid down by the Supreme Court. And that's what we will do. Uh, and we will fight for the brilliance of the Clean Air Act every chance we get. It is a brilliant law. It was brilliantly conceived, and it was conceived in a time when you know no one could know where it might lead us. So that means we will... Uh, review the comments on the endangerment finding, and if and when uh, we make a decision uh, that is positive towards endangerment, from that will flow a requirement for future regulation, starting with mobile sources, those are the car rules, uh, and moving uh, quite easily and logically to other sources of carbon pollution.
1: One of the questions uh, was when will you issue that endangerment finding? <laughs>
0: I have no answer for wins. You know, this is a matter of us doing our job. Um, We certainly are aware of uh, the need to do it and to do it in an expeditious fashion. We proposed in an expeditious fashion, uh, and uh, it's my job to ensure that we respond and uh, consider duly any new information that's in those almost 400,000 comments uh, and, and to respond as well. I often get questions about the car rules. The car rules are greenhouse gas rules, and so the authority for greenhouse gas rules comes from the endangerment uh, uh, finding. That The car rules are a proposal. They cannot be finalized without a final endangerment finding, but they could certainly be proposed, and quite often endangerment findings are proposed along with rulemaking.
1: So if I understand that it's going to happen, we're just not sure when.
0: <laughs> I didn't say that. I said... <laughs> <laughs>
1: I said, Sir <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that we will do our job, that we will consider the comments that we've received, we will consider duly any new information in them, and what will what I will guarantee you will happen as soon as as uh, possibly we are able to do it is that we will make a final decision uh, on the proposal because we have a proposed finding out there, and we know that we owe the American people a decision on uh, the rulemaking process as you propose it, you take comment on it. And then you finalize a decision based on that comment,
1: and that's what we're committed to doing. Our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Lisa Jackson, administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, John Podesta, head of the Center for American Progress, and Rajendra Pachari, chair of the International Panel of Climate Scientists, wrote recently that the prospects of reaching a tre- treaty in Copenhagen are grim. They called for a series of mini-treaties on low-carbon technologies, et cetera, and we have other questions here about what EPA might do in a bi- bilateral sense with China or India or other countries while the international community is, is, is coalescing around an, uh, an international treaty.
0: Well, I think regardless of the you know, odds-making on, on the treaty outcomes and uh, – Um, what I'm told by folks who know international negotiations and are experienced in it is that, you know, it is is quite a sprint as you get closer to the actual date. So I wouldn't hesitate, you know, I wouldn't even offer venture odds-making on that either. But I think regardless of that, it's important for EPA to build domestically on the endangerment finding in terms of continuing its legal obligation here at home and equally important for us to build on some pretty vibrant uh, bilateral relationships that we've developed over the years with China, with Brazil, with uh, Mexico, with uh, India. Now, there are not always relationships that are grounded on CO2 or... Um, mm-hmm greenhouse gas emissions, but they're very much about capacity and governance and enforcement and permitting and markets uh, and uh, uh, methane to markets. And so I I think all of those have formed a a pathway of relationship building that have um, uh, lots and lots of potential still to go. And we've, uh, I've probably taken uh, meetings with the environment ministers of just about every one of those countries I've mentioned and more, and it's because uh, we are convinced that no matter what happens, those relationships uh, and adding to them the relationships that the Department of Energy and Stephen Chu uh, has been making on energy cooperation are absolutely critical to achieving the president's agenda on clean energy.
1: You mentioned uh, the, the Department of Energy. I understand that there's a, a green team, or is a green cabinet, is that the term, uh, which is coordination among different agencies, and yet some other countries, uh, Britain in particular, has gone so far as to restructure its bureaucracies around climate and energy. Do you think coordination will be enough, or do we need to actually move some, uh, move some more of the org chart around the, the organizations to really tackle the climate issue, which cuts across uh, the existing bureaucracies?
0: I I think President Obama's decision to have a Green Cabinet, to have uh, uh, Carol Browner at the Office of Energy and Climate Change in the White House, is an extraordinary recognition of the fact that climate change really is economy-wide. And that, uh, you know, I have conversations at those Green Cabinet meetings with agriculture, with transportation, with housing, with labor, with commerce, um, all the things that states and local governments know and say all the time, you know, we just wish that the federal government understood the multi-programmatic nature of what it takes to get this work done. And so I've seen nothing but success there. I, I, you know, I see no reason to mess with success, but that's the president's ultimate decision.
1: Much of the climate change conversation focuses on mitigation or reducing uh, greenhouse gases. Here in California, the governor has moved the state forward on, on adaptation, preparing for the inevitable uh, situation where there's rising sea levels, there's hotter, drier, there's, there's more fires. Um, and some of this involves restoring wetlands as buffers from, from rising seas. So how much of your time do you spend on adaptation, and where do you see that fitting into the big picture?
0: Well, I think adaptation is extraordinarily important. I think that climate manifests itself in uh, in changes that are uh, catastrophic in nature, that are scary, that uh, bring out the best and worst of us as citizens, and uh, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, look towards adaptation. The good news is that the White House there is also involved. Uh, Nancy Sutley at the Council on Environmental Quality, another Uh, extraordinary appointment with California Roots and just a terrific colleague, has pulled together an interagency group to look at uh, adaptation. I'm struck by the fact that, uh, you know, in my home region, in the Gulf Coast, uh, a lot of the discussion uh, with Senator Landrieu is around restoring the marshes and wetlands down Mm -hmm. there. So, I think that that is a conversation that, again, is swelling up from the ground because people, you know, live firsthand these disasters, and it's not enough to just say, well, you shouldn't, or why'd you, and how'd that happen? It's what are we going to do to take care of each of us? Uh, We are, you know, we are communities. And so, uh, yes, I believe EPA has a role to play, but I don't think EPA can do that alone. And I certainly believe that the Corps of Engineers... uh, has a huge role to play there as well. And uh, I've been uh, so excited by the confirmation of Joel and Darcy uh, as assistant undersecretary there
1: number of questions about the role of corporations as as well of government. Here, obviously, in California, a lot of green tech, clean tech companies are very excited about investments in technology, et cetera. One question asks for your comment on the move recently by some electric utilities to leave the U.S. Chamber of Commerce because the U.S. Chamber of of a difference over uh, tactics and and views on on climate change, PG&E, Exelon today, uh, I think uh, Duke Energy, some others. How is that changing the dynamics around climate change?
0: Well, first, uh, you know, to, to Steve, to his colleagues, to the uh, courage that it takes to stand up and say that, you know, there's lots of things we do together, but this we stand up for uh, because we believe it's right for the country and for our industry. Uh, I'd just like to salute Steve Klein at PG&E and and, and the other industry leaders, and thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, You know, this whole discussion is a bit turned on its head. Um, You know, you heard me talk, and and you'll hear me talk a lot about this idea that the environment shouldn't, at some point it became a partisan issue. It shouldn't be. It, It simply should not be. And it also shouldn't be business against those who, you know, don't like business. This isn't about liking or not liking business. We all want jobs. We want prosperity. We want our country to to thrive we want to be sustainable Um, but all the arguments all the the things that are usually said about top-down environmental command and control regulation have been talked about for years by forward-looking folks who've said let's think about ways to to enlist support on both sides You know, this is a market-based approach. The Waxman-Markey Bill is about a market-based approach to pricing carbon. It's about the simple idea that if carbon costs money to emit and you're in the business of making money, you're going to find a way to minimize how much carbon you emit because then you make more money. And that's an idea that's very, very... uh, I I won't characterize it as red or blue, but it's on the free enterprise, the private sector side of the spectrum. And it's a little disappointing to watch the line move, you know. So you you enlist this market-based approach, and then people say, oh, well, I don't know about markets. I mean, after all, markets. Uh, Um, Or uh, you have business leaders who say, you know what, we've seen now. We're starting to see. And, And toxics are the same way. Businesses say, you know what? We were, we were a little naive. This idea of just pushing off environmental reckonings for another day and pushing off regulation for the future and giving everybody the warm, foggy, fuzzy, you know, big hugs is nice, but we now are caught in endless litigation that means we can't make a prudent investment decision for our shareholders. Help. And when you reach that moment, when you have people saying we need new law, on chemicals, because right now, between Europe and the states and a concerned public, we really don't know uh, where we stand. Or when you have companies saying, listen, maybe all these years of putting off the climate and energy reckoning hasn't helped our bottom line, we should be at a place where everybody says good, but we're a little topsy-turvy, at least on the climate side. Hopefully we won't get there on
1: chemicals. We have uh, just a few minutes left, and I'd like to touch on if we could briefly. There's a, such a broad range of questions from the audience, and can't get to them all or do them all justice. Um, this one is here uh, about electronic waste. Most U.S. electronic recyclers don't actually recycle our old products, they export them to poor countries where they cause great harm. There's another question about extended producer responsibility. Could we touch on that one? And then I've got a few others. Sure.
0: Uh, d- yes. Uh, we. <laughs> Electronic waste wasn't listed in my top uh, priorities, but is uh, increasingly a concern. I think popular uh, media has done a great job of uh, taking away the righteous feeling we all feel when we bring our electronics to a destination and are <clears throat> told they're being taken care of. And producer responsibility programs which I know many of you looking around the room have fought for, because it ensures that we can't just sort of toss it and allow it to be someone else's concern, are a good and and potent answer to to that question. States are dealing with that issue, and uh, I know we we certainly dealt with it in New Jersey when I was there. Uh, I think enforcement is key. I think that uh, EPA has a range of issues regarding toxics and... uh, 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 International treaties and uh, sort of a rejoining of our commitment not to be uh, uh, bad uh, neighbors to the rest of the world when it comes to our used electronics, and we will continue to see a burgeoning market in uh, in e-waste recycling. And it's something that uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time on in international trips. And I know that Maddie Stanislaus, who was recently confirmed as head of the uh, solid waste program is particularly focused on. So although I'm not spending lots of personal time on it, I know he is, is very committed to addressing that issue and getting ahead of it.
1: We have a very informed and serious audience here in California, as you know, <laughs> who can... Uh, ask lots of pointed questions. Others about, uh, some agricultural oriented questions. One is every summer, a dead zone forms off the Gulf coast as a result of algae die-offs linked to agriculture runoff. Uh, this is close to your home or where you came from. Uh, what, if anything, can you plan to do about that?
0: Well, I think we must, I think, you know, I, I want to s- expand that and then come back down to, uh, to the, the Gulf South, you know, water quality is an issue. It's 2009, almost 2010, and we have a Clean Water Act, and water quality is an issue. And despite the fact that enforcement is not uniform across the country and despite the fact that some industries still think that uh, a state uh, uh, NIPTE's permit is, uh, is, you know, just to be read and filed away, uh, the vast majority of the progress that's been made on water quality is in controlling point sources, in investing in uh, sewage treatment plants, which was the construction grants program, in continuing to invest in them, which is the state revolving fund program where we got $6 billion most recently in the Recovery Act, uh, and in uh, the permitting program. So, And water quality is still an issue. So what's that about? That's about... Uh, the stuff that doesn't come from pipes. That's about runoff. That's about stormwater pollution. That's about uh, uh, water that runs through our streets if it's a developed area, over our cropland, if it's row crops, over our uh, 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 pasture land and uh, uh, other areas for animals if it's uh, uh, an animal uh, operation, a feeding operation. And all of that is really the frontier of, uh, of making the next big stride on water quality. You heard me say that air and water quality improvement is one of my four priorities. And when I think about water quality, I think about the fact that we need to take another giant step forward, like we did in the construction grants program. And I'm really optimistic about the idea of having a national conversation about that. Um, the Gulf of Mexico zone is a, is a great example. The Mississippi River is a wonderful, great river, one of our country's great rivers, uh, certainly one of our great ecosystems, but it is vast. And so it is heartening to see the U.S. Department of Agriculture look uh, under the leadership of Tom Vilsack, a former governor of Iowa, one of the states through which the Mississippi drains, to say, we believe that we do have a responsibility to folks who live off this water body down in the Gulf, to shrimpers and crabbers, um, and uh, take proactive steps I I think that's a first step. The next step is what's equally important. On the Chesapeake Bay, it's extraordinarily important that we take the next giant leap forward because it's been 25 years of baby steps and great information, but people are discouraged there as well. We recently announced a draft set of actions there, and it's about increasing regulation, increasing enforcement, and at the very same time, targeting the substantial amount of money that USDA has to a watershed to make targeted and huge improvements in water quality. And I think not one of those can exist without the other. And the truth of the matter is, if you're going to increase regulation or increase enforcement, that will take time. But tomorrow you can provide technical assistance and funding to those communities in the Chesapeake and see real change. Uh, And so I think that model has the potential to be the next big step forward for our countries, for the water bodies around our country. And it's why it was so important that the president not long ago issued an executive order for the Chesapeake Bay, and we said that we would make the Chesapeake a laboratory for the country. And that was um, uh, certainly not an empty promise and I think one of the most important things we've done.
1: We've come to the point with just one last question, Uh, and this one circles back to your news today about toxics and asks whether your proposed toxic law will include provisions similar to those in the Clean Air Act and Water Act that allow citizens to enforce the proposed law.
0: Save the best for last there.
1: It's not mine. It's just uh, the the people.
0: (laughs) The people want to know. Um, that's a great idea. I think, uh, I think that that is certainly something to be considered as we work with uh, with the framers of uh, the next TSCA, the, the next law that covers toxic chemicals. I'll just say in general that I think the, the threat and the actuality of citizen enforcement and citizen action is what uh, the new environmentalism has been and is what the old environmentalism was. It's just a different venue. Uh, And so I believe that whether it's uh, citizens acting alone, citizens acting as NGOs, citizens acting through their local government, citizens acting through their state government, all of those things have brought us to a place where, despite eight years of what I believe was uh, more than inaction on the environment, the environmental issues did not stop moving forward. Uh, And so um, I'll simply close by saying that I think that uh, the power of, uh, of the citizenry should never be ignored on either that issue or any other environmental one. And uh, I'm, I'm just extraordinarily honored to be able to uh, work to give
1: uh,
0: uh, citizens a voice on these issues.
1: Our thanks to Lisa Jackson, administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. comments here today. Now, this meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. I'm Greg Dalton, and thank you, Administrator Jackson, for coming. Thanks,
0: Greg.